Thanks, Erica. If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 11. <clears throat> chapter 11, if it's a hard copy or you've got a digital copy there. This is somewhat random, but when I, uh, when I have the honor of officiating weddings, uh, probably about like 50, maybe 60% of the time, we get to the vows portion and... Uh, you know, we're doing the repeat after me thing and I so-and-so take you so-and-so or whatever. And 50, 50, 60% of the time, it's usually the man. Uh, I'm telling, I'm giving them the thing that they're supposed to repeat and they're saying it like back to me. And I've got to say like, don't look at me, look at her. Like you're not, not promising me anything. The reason that the reason that we always say, like, open your Bible, whether it's on your phone or, or a hard copy in front of you, is, is sort of the same thing. Like, look at the text, not at me. Like, as we work through a passage, we want to we see it in the text, not just because some guy up front said X, Y, and Z. And so we ask you to bring it so you can see it. Look at the text, not at me. Um, we're going to work with verses 10 to 26 this morning. And it's another genealogy. It's the fourth genealogy in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. When we started this series in the sermon where we, we just laid the foundation for what Genesis was going to be, I said that the book of Genesis is how an Israelite person would answer their grandchild or great-grandchild's question, like, how did we, how did we get here? And that would be if they're wandering in the desert or they're you know, settled in the promised land or they're in exile, if they asked how did we get here? A faithful Israelite, you know, grandfather, grandmother would, would say, well, let me tell you, in the beginning, God. It would start there. And it, it's also the way that as followers of Jesus, if someone asks us the modern day equivalent of like, how did we get here or what's going on? We often, with, with right intention, I mean, it's not bad. We want to jump into just like straight to the Jesus part. Well, there's this guy, Jesus. The full answer to how, how we got here is to go all the way back to the beginning and say, let me tell you why it is that the world is the way that it is and you are the way that you are and why it is that we would need a man named Jesus. That begins all the way back in Genesis, specifically Genesis chapters 1 to 11. What we have in the book of Genesis is not like exhaustive sort of modern history book where... We're, we're told all of the, here's what happened, here's why it happened, and here are the parties involved. It's not a science textbook that gives us the definitive explanation for, for those types of questions. What you have in the book of Genesis is narrative theology. It's the story of God interacting with humanity via a specific relationship with a specific people for a specific purpose. And the first 11 chapters of that narrative move very quickly. How did we get from nothing to the specific person, that would be Abraham. That's what the first 11 chapters are doing. So it's moving very fast. And then the next 39 chapters in the book of Genesis slow way down. How does God interact with that specific family? And you get zoomed in to their actual lives and the things that happen for Abraham and his son and his grandson and his great-grandson. And then you work your way down. If you look at verses 10 to 26... You'll notice there in Genesis chapter 11, it's, I'm, I'm not stopping most likely where your English translation breaks the text. The chapters and verses and the sections in your English Bible, in general, those came to us in like the 1500s. The book of Genesis wasn't written with those distinctions. The book of Genesis was written in 10 
pieces that are set off by the same phrase that you see 10 different times. So we've put this chart up here before, but here it is again. The 10 distinctions in the book of Genesis work as a funnel. The first time you see these are the records of, that's the phrase, it's about the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 2. And every time you see that phrase after that, it's narrowing our focus to a specific group of people. These are the records of the heavens and the earth. These are the family records of Adam. These are the family records of Noah. These are the family records of Shem, Ham and Japheth, chapter 10. These are the family records of Shem, specifically. We're going to see that this morning in chapter 11. These are the family records of Terah. And it's focusing your attention here. The hinge point in Genesis 11 is a man named Abram or Abraham. Now you notice that his name isn't up there. There is no, these are the family records of Abraham statement in the book of Genesis. That because, that's because Abraham's life is tucked into the family records of his father, Terah. Where we're going to break this morning is right before these are the family records of Terah. We're going to stop in Genesis chapter 11, just before we get to there. So what we're going to, we're going to read the passage here. What is Genesis 11 trying to tell us about from Shem or Noah down to Abraham, Abram? How does that fit within the larger picture of Genesis and specifically the first 11 chapters? And then why does a genealogy again like this make any difference to us today or have any impact on us today? So if you've got it open there in front of you, look at the text, not at me. Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 10. These are the family records of Shem. Shem lived a hundred years and fathered Arpachshad, two years after the flood. After he fathered Arpachshad, Shem lived 500 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Arpachshad lived 35 years and fathered Shelah. After he fathered Shelah, Arpachshad lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and fathered Eber. After he fathered Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and fathered Peleg. After he fathered Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years with Reu. After he fathered Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and fathered Sirug. After he fathered Sirug, Reu lived 207 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Sirug lived 30 years and fathered Nahor. After he fathered Nahor, Sirig lived 200 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and fathered Terah. After he fathered Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. The chance to gather together as a church to sing the truth of who we are chosen, not forsaken. We are who you say that we are. God, I pray this morning that you would give us reminders or deepening understanding of what it means to be who you say that we are. God, help us to grasp and hold on to the truth of who you are and what you're doing in the world and what that means for us. God, give us a humility to understand our place in this world that you have created. God, would you speak to us by the power of your spirit? Would you glorify yourself as we engage with your word and as we spend time in worship and fellowship? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is the second genealogy we've had in like three weeks here as we're working through Genesis. Genesis chapter 10 is a genealogy. 
Then there's the story of the Tower of Babel. Now Genesis chapter 11 has another genealogy. I want to just sort of put a couple charts up here so you can see the difference between the Genesis 10 and the Genesis 11 genealogies. The, the genealogy in Genesis chapter 10 is what we would think of when we think of a family tree. It's horizontal in nature. You get a, a person and their son in this case, and then all of their sons, and then another person and their son, and all of their sons, and it sort of like fans its way out like a standard family tree would. The point in Genesis chapter 10 in this horizontal genealogy, as you see it there, is that humanity is spreading on the earth. They're filling the earth. Now, there was resistance to that. We saw that at the Tower of Babel, which is tucked inside of the Genesis chapter 11 or 10 genealogical history. But the command, be fruitful, fill the earth, and multiply, God moves humanity in that direction despite their desire to sort of hunker down and build a city for themselves. Genesis 10 is saying, we ended up where God said we were going to end up. Nations spread out over the face of the earth with different cultures and language, living in different places. The earth was filled as humanity multiplied. Now, Genesis chapter 11, if you were to sort of chart it out, looks like this. It's just one vertical line. A guy has a son who 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 has three sons. Genesis chapter 11 is more interested in giving you the sort of like direct legal descendant, if you will, that led us from Noah down to ultimately Abraham, although it ends with his father, Terah. That vertical genealogy is closer to the way that you would tell a story to a friend. If I wanted to tell a story about my great-great-grandfather... I would not start with my great-great-grandfather and say, look, before we jump into the story, he had this many siblings and then they got married and they had this many siblings and then they got married and they had some kids and then my dad was born. And so it's my, you would just say my great-grandfather, my dad's dad, dad, dad's dad. Like that's who we're talking about. You would give the direct line. Chapter 10 is focused on the spread of, of humanity. God's creating and crafting of the nations. Chapter 11 is focused on this direct line. How did we get from Noah down to Abram or Abraham. The more direct genealogical comparison in the book of Genesis comes from Genesis chapter five. Here's what that would look like if you charted out the genealogy in Genesis chapter five. Notice the similarities. 10 generations in both sides. They both end with a trio of sons. In Genesis chapter five, Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In Genesis chapter 11, Terah has three sons, Nahor, Abram, and Haran. There's also the fact that in both genealogies, in Genesis chapter 5 and in Genesis chapter 11, there's a name included that's going to be sort of like a thorn in the side of these people moving forward. In Genesis chapter 5, it's Ham, more specifically his son, Canaan. In Genesis chapter 11, it's Haran, more specifically his son, Lot. They're very parallel to one another. With one key difference, if you've got a Bible there in front of you, flip back to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 has a theological purpose that it's subtly trying to make as it works its way through these generations. Most likely, your text is just laid out in, a, in like 10 very small little paragraphs. The end of every paragraph ends the same way. Verse 5, then he died. Verse 8, then he died. Verse 11, then he died. Verse 14, 
then he died. Verse 17, then he died. Verse 20, then he died. Verse 24, God took him. There's a break in the rhythm. That's about Enoch, but then we're back to it. Verse 27, then he died. Verse 31, then he died. Genesis chapter five, the genealogy that's listed there. How did we get from Abraham, or Adam down to Noah? Comes on the heels of Genesis three and four that are the explanation of sin entering into the world. And so what does Genesis five underscore for you? Death has come. He died, he died, he died, he died, he died. This is the consequence of sin. Eight times in 10 generations, that phrase shows up. Then he died. Flip back to Genesis chapter 11. The rhythm in Genesis chapter 11, just the verbal rhythm is different. So-and-so lived, blank number of years, and followed so-and-so, fathered so-and-so. They lived, blank number of years, and fathered other sons and daughters. In 10 generations, 17 times, the word lived is there. What's the the sort of subtle theological underscoring there. God is preserving a people that will ultimately land on Abraham who will be the father of blessing to all of the nations. It doesn't mean that these people cease to die. The implication is that they lived X number of years, fathered other sons and daughters, and then they died. But God is preserving this line from Noah down to Abraham the person through which he's going to have a specific covenantal relationship with for a specific purpose. General humanity gets funneled down to specific covenantal history. The book of Genesis is not claiming to give you exhaustive history of all of humanity. It's not claiming to give you exhaustive understanding of the earliest days of the earth. What Genesis 1 through 11 is giving its readers is a theological history for how the God of the universe ends up in a specific covenantal relationship with one group of people. How did we get from nothing to God interacting with Abraham and his family in this very specific way. Genesis 1 to 11 gives you that story. In fact, if you were to just take those three primary genealogies, chapter 5, chapter 10, and chapter 11, you get a pretty comp- comprehensive picture of the whole section or foundation of Scripture. God creates, sin enters, and then sin spreads. Genesis 5, he died, he died, he died, he died. Humanity spreads out and fills the earth. And then there's a line of God's blessing that leads to his covenant with one people through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. If you want to give the briefest summary possible of the early chapters of the Bible, you could just use that as a rough outline. God creates, sin enters the world, sin spreads, humanity spreads, God makes a covenant. Genesis 1 to 11. And it's out of that covenant that the rest of the Bible is going to stand on. It's that foundation of Genesis 1 to 11 and the covenant that God forms with Abraham that the rest of scripture is built on top of. How do you understand everything else that's happening over the scope of the Bible? By understanding Genesis chapters 1 to 11. And this genealogy is the last push down to Abraham. Genesis 11 says, here's how we got from Noah to Abraham The first 11 chapters of of Genesis are saying, here's how we got from nothing to God in specific relationship with specific people. And so the most important stuff to keep in mind as we engage with scripture and in life is not like the Bible quiz sort of knowledge. That stuff's fine. 
But if you're reading in the middle of 2 Kings or 1 Chronicles and you're trying to figure out what in the world this has to do with anything and why it matters to me, the answer is not Pelig is the son of Eber. Like having the trivia knowledge is not ultimately going to help you understand the big purpose of stuff. What's going to help you understand the big purpose of stuff is to understand the really big, deep, meaningful, theological foundations that all the rest of Scripture is built on. In Genesis 1 through 11, lays that foundation down for you. This is a theological narrative. The theological stuff is most important to keep in mind. So what are some of those theological truths? Number one, God creates everything from nothing. That's the key to the beginning of the Bible. God is immense and powerful. He needs nothing to create everything. He speaks and stuff happens. He is the creator and the king of this whole place that he has created. It's important to note, it's not that he wants to be creator and king. It's that he is creator and king. Sometimes when we present the gospel, particularly when we try to present the gospel to young children, we slip into verbiage that makes it seem as though God is sitting up in heaven just hoping that you will coronate him king. Like, God is on his throne in heaven just waiting for humanity to make him king. No, he is king. He is creator. And humanity can either acknowledge that or try to pretend like it's not real. Humanity can either submit to that or live in rebellion to it. But he does not become king because you make him king. He is king. And you either submit to that or you fight against it all the days of your life. Those are the two options. Number two, humanity is made in God's image, but marred by sin. That's a sin that is pervasive and destructive, a sin that's destructive to humanity as well as to the rest of God's creation. The culminating act of God's creative work is human beings made in his image. To be made in the image of God means that we reflect something of his nature and his glory out into the universe and the world that he has created. To be made in the image of God means that God has set his unique affection upon humanity in a way that's different than the way that he loves the rest of his creation. To be made in the image of God means that every human being has value and worth and dignity because of the creator who intentionally formed and fashioned them. Now, despite being made in God's image, humanity since Adam and Eve is marred by sin. But the presence of sin does not negate the image of God within human beings. It's not that we were made in the image of God and then sin came in and now we're no longer made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God, marred by the presence of sin. That means that as followers of Jesus, we hold two things in tension alongside one another and we don't need one to negate the other. We would say humanity is deeply flawed. Created by God in his image, but deeply flawed because of the reality of sin. And yet, of immense value and worth. And we don't need one to cave to the other. And that flies in the face of what would be the two dominant ways that our broader culture thinks about humanity. Well, humanity is all good. This is the, the best of the earth is humanity. 
uh, sure, but what do you do with all of the dark, broken, evil stuff that lurks around in your heart and in your mind and that sometimes you act upon? If you're actually good, why does that stuff exist? Christians have an answer. We're deeply flawed, marred by sin. And yet we don't have to give over to the other side, which would be to say that human beings are the absolute worst. We're like the scum of the earth. We would say, well, hold on, marred by sin, but of immense value and worth. And we can hold both of those things up and neither one has to negate the reality of the other. That's something unique that Christians hold out to the world. Number three, sin is rebellion against and rivalry with God. Despite him being creator and king, we often fancy ourselves to be of greater knowledge, greater wisdom, and greater importance than God. We make our own determinations about what is right and what is wrong. We want to set ourselves up as most important, most central, most worthy of praise. And the recurring theme of Scripture is that humanity cannot help but rebel against God and seek to rival Him. It is in our very nature to do those two things. Look, when you get done with Genesis chapter 11, you jump into Genesis chapter 12, and you just start to get the story of this chosen people, Abraham and his family, that God has special relationship with, you get this picture of human beings who are deeply broken and flawed. Like you read about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and their siblings and their wives and their children and their relationships. And you say to yourself, God most certainly should have picked someone else other than this family because this is horrible. But if God had picked someone else, the story would have been the same. Why? Because all of humanity is deeply flawed. We rebel against God and we want to rival him. It's in our very nature to do so. And if something is going to fix the fundamental brokenness of the human heart, it's going to have to come from outside the human heart. That's another place where the follower of Jesus would diverge with our culture and the sort of larger narrative in our world about what it means to have identity and value and worth and purpose. Our larger narrative in our culture would say, well, you need to look into your heart, find out what's really there, and then you'll have your identity and you can live out your purpose. The follower of Jesus would say, the deeper you look into your heart, the more broken you're going to discover that it actually is, the more help you're going to find out that it actually needs. And if you're just going to live out what you find in your heart, what you're going to live out will be dark and broken and sinful, despite your best attempts for it to be otherwise. You need something from the outside to come in and fix the heart so that then you can live out of that newness rather than the brokenness. That is what the follower of Jesus would say about how it is that we live well in the world and discover our identity and our purpose. It's not just we look into our heart and see what's there, because you look into your heart, you're gonna find darkness and brokenness, rebellion against God, in rivalry with him. You need something from outside the system to come in and fix it. Number four, God is just, gracious, and merciful. Now, he's those three things alongside a host of other qualities. But the rhythm in Genesis 1 to 11 is that he is those three things in infinite measure. He is just, Sin is an act of rebellion against and rivalry with an eternal and infinite God, and it cannot go ignored or unpunished. He does not just turn a blind eye or kind of wink and smile at sin. He can't, and so there's judgment for sin 
Adam and Eve have to leave the garden. Cain becomes a wanderer on the earth. Floodwaters rise. The people of Babel are scattered. And yet inside all of those acts of judgment, there is grace and mercy. Adam and Eve don't die immediately, despite the fact that that's what their sin deserves. Cain is protected with this mark that God gives him so that no one will take vengeance upon him for having murdered his brother. In fact, the first genealogy in the book of Genesis is a genealogy of Cain in chapter four. Why in the world is that there? He's not the person of blessing because God was faithful to his promise to not let someone avenge him. I gave him you a mark. Here's your family. It's the evidence of my goodness to you. Noah and his family are spared from the flood. God honors his covenant promise not to destroy the world in that way again. And so when the people of Babel build their tower and their city to rival God, they're not destroyed. He's gracious and merciful. He's perfectly just and sin will be punished. Yet he's overwhelmingly gracious. And that leads to the last big point here. That God has a plan to defeat Satan, redeem humanity, and restore his creation. That is the entire story of the Bible. God is going to defeat Satan, redeem humanity, restore his creation. Throughout the rest of the Bible, people enter and exit the picture. Events and sort of short narratives kind of have their own arc and those sorts of things, but the people you hear about and the situations you read about, they're all moving together in one direction to the defeat of Satan, the redemption of humanity, and the restoration of God's creation. God lays that promise down in Genesis 3.15, that one will come who will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will strike his heel and bruise him, so there will be suffering in the midst of it, but ultimately God will defeat Satan. He accomplishes that plan at Calvary. He puts a final period in place when Jesus returns in glory. And at every point in the biblical story, particularly if you find yourself confused about what you're reading and why it matters and and what is going on in any given part of scripture. Step number one should be zoom out and ask yourself, where am I in that big story? How does what I'm reading right now fit inside God's plan to defeat Satan, redeem humanity and restore his own creation? And how does it move it forward? That's a plan that moves through Abraham, which is where Genesis 11 drops you. It culminates in Jesus. And just to sort of like show my work here so it's not just the preacher up front flapping his lips. If you've got a Bible, flip to Luke chapter three. There's a genealogy in Luke chapter three. It's a genealogy of Jesus. Matthew has a genealogy of Jesus. It starts with the old stuff and works toward Jesus. Luke's genealogy starts with Jesus and then works backward toward the old stuff. If you've got a Bible open there in front of you, I'm going to drop into the middle of it in verse 34. Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sirug, the son of Reu. Does this sound familiar? The son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpachshad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah. That's ripped straight out of Genesis chapter 11. But he keeps going. He jumps back to the genealogy in Genesis chapter five. The son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. Why does that matter? Because one of Adam's sons 
the offspring of the woman, will be the one who crushes the head of the serpent. What is Luke trying to show you? Here he is, from outside the system, born of a virgin, come into the world to defeat Satan, redeem humanity, and restore creation. Here he is. And in order to prove that, Luke jumps back to Genesis chapters 5 and 11 and pulls those genealogies forward and says, this is the one that you've been waiting for. He is Jesus of Nazareth. You can flip back to Genesis 11. In that plan, God is just. The debt and the wages of sin is paid by Jesus, the son, but in it, he is gracious and merciful because sinful humanity can find shelter from the just punishment for sin in the work of Jesus Christ. God will do all of that, defeat Satan, redeem humanity, restore his creation for his and for the good of his people. What's to be gloried in throughout the pages of scripture is not any particular individual or any momentarily prominent figure. What's to be gloried in is the God who's moving it all forward. The great quote unquote heroes of the Bible are wildly flawed. All of them that come before Jesus, all of them that came after Jesus. Why? Because the great capital H hero of the Bible jumps off the page to you in sparkling perfection. He is sinless and does not need to be forgiven. He crushes the head of the serpent and yet is wounded by him at the same time. He rises triumphantly, conquering the power of sin and death, and he comes back one day. That figure ought to just scream at you off the pages of the Gospels. Genesis 1 to 11 is laying the foundation for why it is that we need that guy to come and save us. All that God does, he does for his glory, and we are the beneficiaries. All of the good that happens in our lives comes to us alongside his glory. And so part of the application here is that we need to keep all of those big general theological truths in mind when we approach any particular section of scripture or any particular season of life. But I think we can drill down even a little bit further than that. God creates everything from nothing. Humanity is made in God's image, but marred by sin. Sin is rebellion against and rivalry with God. God is just, gracious, and merciful. He's got a plan to defeat Satan, redeem humanity, and restore his creation. And he's involved. God is involved. That's the common thread in every piece of Genesis 1 to 11. Chapters 1 and 2, the universe is created. Why? Because God spoke it into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. Who's there moving through the garden? God. Who engages with them immediately after their sin? God. Who pronounces judgments upon them? God. Who makes a promise of his grace? God. Who clothes them? God. Who lets them live as they walk out of the garden? God. He is involved. Cain kills Abel. When? Well, they were on their way to make sacrifices to God. When Cain became jealous of Abel and the fact that his sacrifice was accepted, And then Cain murders Abel, and who engages with Cain? God. And then as Cain is forced to wander the earth, who protects him and keeps him alive? God. He's involved. Genesis chapter 6, sin is rampant on the earth. Who sees it? God. Every inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time. Floodwaters rise. Who tells them how high? God. Who stops the rain? God. Who causes it to recede? God. Genesis 9, Noah and his family leave the ark. Who's the first one to speak? Noah, oh, finally, we're out of the boat. No, God, 
Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis chapter 11, the people of Babel build a really big tower. Who comes down and gets involved? God. Every piece of the Bible from that point forward is going to display the same thing. In fact, there's a moment before Israel's exile. God is speaking to the people of Judah. He's telling them, Babylon is coming, a nation from the north, and they are going to take you off into captivity. And what is his piece of comfort for them? Jeremiah 23, 23. Am I a God who is only near and not a God who is far away? What's the point there? You could be living here in Jerusalem or carted off to Babylon, and I am active and involved in both places. I'm everywhere, near, far. Jerusalem, Babylon, I'm there, and I'm active. And all of that culminates in the arrival of the Son in human flesh, involved. And you might need that reminder today. God is involved. He's not distant and disinterested. So whatever it is that you have going on in your life, the season seems really dark and difficult and heavy and the trial seems overwhelming and like this thing that you can't bear up under and it must be that God has turned and walked away from you, it cannot be true. He's involved. And he always will be. You might need that reminder as you look at like larger culture in the world around us. And you think to yourself, this place has gone absolutely to pot. I think God has washed his hands of us and he's just letting us devour ourselves. He's involved. And though it might be easier for you to rationalize in your mind what's going on in the world around us, if God were absent, that cannot be the case. Is he a God Near only and not far away? Is he a God far away only and not near? Where could you go to hide from his presence? Nowhere. Because he's active. He's involved. Let the pages of scripture be a constant reminder to you. But the really good news is that he's not just merely involved. He's more than that. God is the author. God isn't just an active participant in what's happening in Genesis 1 to 11. He's the causative agent in the story of his glory from page one to page number last. And there are difficult, thorny theological questions within that. What is the role of God as it relates to the sin that takes place in the world that seems to advance his purposes? How is he involved in that? Fantastic question. I'm not gonna answer it this morning. People have been wrestling with that for generations. But the constant dominant historical orthodox view and understanding of scripture is that God is the author of everything that happens throughout human history, regardless of how you try to answer the thorny, difficult theological questions. He's writing and moving history toward his desired outcome, the defeat of Satan, the redemption of humanity, the restoration of his creation. We're not going to just sort of slip our way there. He's gonna guide us there without fail. In fact, while reflecting on the darkest episode in human history, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, in Acts chapter four, the apostles have a, a group gathered there. They're giving a sermon, essentially. And Acts 4.24 says that the Israelite people and the leaders of the Gentiles assembled together against Jesus to do what God's hand and God's will had predestined to take place. He's controlling and moving everything from the events in Genesis 
to the events of Jesus's life, to the details of your everyday existence. That means that the good stuff that happens in your life probably wasn't really all because of you. It also means that the bad seasons and the bad experiences have a reason and a purpose whether we can see them and articulate them in the moment or not. It means that our triumphs are not reason for pride and our trials are not reason for total despair. God is the author and he's moving everything in one direction and he will get it there and it will be for his glory and for your good. But he isn't just authoring the story, he's even more than that because the good news is that God is the entire point. Who's the subject of the first sentence of the Bible? In the beginning, say it out loud, God. We're really familiar with that sentence. We're not quite as familiar with what the last sentence of the Bible is. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with everyone. Who's the subject there? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, God. And now in a strictly grammatical sense, God is not the subject of every sentence in between. But in the deepest theological sense, he absolutely is. Every book of the Bible is entirely about God. Every chapter of every book is entirely about God. Every verse in every chapter is entirely about God. Every clause in every verse in every chapter in every book of the Bible is entirely about God. And the same is true in your life. Every season of your life is entirely about God. Every scene within every season in your entire life is entirely about God. Every minute of every scene of every season of your life is entirely about God. And that is wonderful news. Why? Again, it flies in the face of the more dominant narrative that exists in our culture. What's that dominant narrative? You're the entire point. Which means that all of your successes hinge on you. You have to be the hero. It also means that you could be the scapegoat if everything goes wrong. And if everything goes wrong, it probably means that you should have gotten up earlier. You should have stayed up later. You should have hustled harder or grinded longer. You should have been smarter. You should have been savvier. You should have read more books. You should have understood more. You should have tried a little bit harder. And no human soul can bear the weight of that for the entirety of their life. Why do you think it is that our culture is so tired and so exhausted and so anxiety-ridden? Because you weren't meant to bear the weight of all of that. And good news, The Christian looks at that and says, boy, do I have something wonderful to tell you. You aren't the point. And there's freedom in that. God is the point. Which means that my greatest triumphs aren't all about me and my deepest valleys aren't all about me. They're entirely about God. It doesn't mean that I'm inconsequential, remember, because I'm deeply flawed yet infinitely valuable. So I matter, but it doesn't all hinge on me. My actions are important, but they're not going to erase what the God of history is doing in and through my life or in and through humanity. Our darkest days are supported by him. Our greatest joys are enlivened by him. Our highest peaks are found in him. Our deepest valleys are raised up by him. Our most shameful moments are covered by him. Our deepest satisfaction is found in him. Our most hidden and embarrassing sins are forgiven by him. And at the end of it all, we'll see that he was no mere bystander. He was involved, but not merely involved. He was the author, but not merely the author. He was the entire point. God is the entire point, the entire time.
for all of eternity. And that ought to be one of the most freeing things that we as followers of Jesus can present to a very weary and very burdened culture searching for answers about who they are, what their identity is, why they matter. And it's Genesis 1 to 11 that lays the foundation for all of that. If you're someone who's going to pass out communion, will you come grab these trays and get those going? Uh, if you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we invite you to take communion with us. You, you might just be visiting this morning. Um, we invite you to partake if you've been saved by God uh, and his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So when these come by, just grab a little two stack of cups. If you need a gluten-free waiver, wafer, grab one from the middle. That reality is true in every facet of our lives. It's true for all that happens in the world. It's true for all of the little seasons that take place for any of us as individuals. But where I want us to end this morning is that God being the entire point the entire time for all of eternity is also true in our quote-unquote religion. When we come together in corporate worship, we're not doing a thing that's about us. We're doing a thing that's about him. When we read scripture and pray in our personal times of worship, we're not doing a thing that's about us. We're doing a thing that's entirely about him. Oftentimes, uh, if, you're trying, if you're in a discipleship relationship or you're just talking to your kids or you've got a coworker who maybe isn't a Christian or maybe is more like culturally involved in church and you're trying to explain why it is that like you would make time to read your Bible and pray or to make church a priority, oftentimes we, we can easily slip into saying something like, oh, well, I do that because it makes me feel better at the start of my day to read the Bible and to pray. Uh, I go to church because it's just, it's like a nice little motivational shot and it helps my week along. No, that would make those things about you. But it's, it's entirely about him. The entire time for all of eternity. So when we gather together in worship, it's about him. So I, I'm under no delusions. Like sometimes you walk out of here on a Sunday morning and you get in your car and you look at your spouse or, or something like that. Or you're, you're reflecting later and you're like, I, that sermon was awful. Like what was he even trying to say? I, don't, I couldn't follow it. I don't understand. Look, I'm gonna sleep okay at night because I think as long as I'm faithful to the text, God was honored and that was the point anyway. Or you, you get in your car or you leave a church entirely and you say to yourself, like, I just di I didn't really love the music. Well, the, it wasn't really for you. I mean, like, we want you to engage with it. We have a certain style that we play. The band works hard. They want it to sound good. But ultimately, it's for the glory of the Lord. Every time we're together, all the time we're together, and it will be for all of eternity. It's about him. When you gather together in fellowship with other believers, that's not a thing that you do that's about you. That's not even necessarily a thing that you do that's about the other person. It's ultimately a thing that's entirely about God. When you share the gospel, when you serve other people, when you grow in sanctification, as we pursue the good of the places where we live, as we go and engage in our jobs, as we raise our children, spend our money, use our talents, eat our meals, as we work our way through the various seasons of life, none of that is ultimately about us. It is entirely about him. 
You've got a little cup there in your hands. When we take communion on a Sunday morning, we're doing a thing that's not about us. It's entirely about him. Taking communion isn't a way to like assuage a guilty soul that's been wrestling with sin all week. Taking communion is not a way to like absolve yourself from sins or something like that. Taking a communion is to hold two things in your hands and say to yourself, this is the center of history and it's all about a broken body and blood poured out for the glory of God and the good of God's people. Taking communion is an act that recenters you on the thing that ultimately matters that it's entirely about him the entire time. And it will be for all of eternity. Where does the Bible end? In the book of Revelation. And the scenes that stand out in Revelation are not scenes where like a human being walks into heaven and the whole place erupts because they're so excited that that person is there. Now, Jesus says in Luke 15 in his parables that heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. But what are the images that stand out in Revelation? All the nations gathered around the throne of heaven, offering their praises not to one another, but to the lamb. Because it's entirely about him the entire time. And it will be for all of eternity. And when we take communion, we give our hearts and our minds and our taste buds that reminder. This is about him. It always has been, and it always will be. So brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ given for you. Eat in remembrance of him. That cup represents the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink in remembrance of him. And would that act in our time in worship, in our time in scripture, be a reminder to our broken hearts that he is the entire point, the entire time for all of eternity. Let's stand up and sing.